Well, if you would, we're going to continue. I would invite you to grab a Bible, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to finish up chapter 8 this morning, all right? If you don't have a Bible, all right, you can always get your phone out and go to cpwp.life, swipe over so you see a card that says message notes. Any of the slides that I'll put up this morning will be there as well as the text. And I want to just take a moment to go ahead and read this as we conclude chapter 8, all right? And so there's some context here. Let me, as you're kind of finding your your spot, and I'm going to go ahead and read this in just a moment. But the context is this, and Pastor Eric did a great job preaching the first part of chapter eight last week, is that there's this call for the church in Corinth to give, as other churches in the surrounding area and region had given, to give a collection or to take up a collection and offering for those that are suffering deeply in Jerusalem to actually allow Paul and some of his companions to travel and to go and bring this gift, viewing themselves not as just this isolated church in a particular city, but seeing themselves as part of this bigger whole and knowing there's a whole mission that they get to participate in. And what Paul did last, what we saw in the text last week, is he doesn't guilt them into it. He doesn't say, you gotta do this. He doesn't bust out like a little pamphlet on what tithing looks like, but rather he reminds them of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who emptied himself, who is the one who became poor so that we might actually become rich and have the privilege of giving. And now what we have here in 16 to 24, as I read this, is Paul honestly just sort of detailing, hey, here's how this is gonna play out. I'm gonna send some people to go and kind of collect this and here's how we're gonna handle the money. And so I'll read these verses and then we need to sort of unpack and kind of figure out together, what does this have to say for us living today, even in the cultural moment that we're in? We trust in that God's word is living and active. And so I'm gonna read 2 Corinthians chapter eight, picking up in verse 16 through the end of the chapter. And it begins with praise. Paul says this, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. Verse 20, we take this course that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. We wanna ask God's spirit to be present here with us and that he might teach us, that he might use this word that is living and active to illuminate our hearts, our minds, that it might bring transformation. So wherever you're at, as I put these words up on the screen, will you pray aloud with me this prayer? Guide us, O God, by your word, and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to be honest with you, as I got into this text this week and sort of prepping for it, and even knowing a few weeks ago, like this particular passage was coming up as we sort of laid out kind of a breakdown of how we're going to work our way through this great letter. I'll be honest, I was not just giddy with excitement about these particular verses, all right? Like I literally am reminding myself, all scriptures breathed out by God. There's something in here. 
But at first glance, it kind of just looks like, I don't know if you felt this as I was reading it, but it's like, okay, there's this beautiful stuff at the start of chapter eight, and we're gonna get into this amazing stuff as we get into chapter nine. And this seemed like a little bit of just detail on like, okay, well, here's how to collect an offering and here's how policies and procedures and we'll make sure it doesn't get lost. And we'll make sure that a group of people's handling it. And that's good and right. And we need to grow in those. It reminded me of the early days of Crosspoint. It literally was, we were a few months old. All right. Um, and we had our a Sunday morning gathering as we would gather in person back in the day. Right. And uh, had this gathering. And I remember being uh, very nervous. I'm a little nervous usually before I get up to teach, but this was particularly so because it was the first Sunday, I was actually going to address generosity, giving, tithing, all of that stuff. I was like, I don't know how this is going to be received. But, and I remember even preaching a bit out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, what we looked, some of the verses we looked at last week. And I remember getting up, and I remember proclaiming this and calling people and talking about the joy and sacrificial generosity in giving, all right? And then we got done with the service, and uh, we were kind of a few of us that were there, kind of some volunteers and people just kind of packing everything up. And I remember looking around, and a question popped up like, hey, um, after this big call, right, to give, and just wondering how the Lord was going to work through the kind of the first time we'd addressed this, we're raising support, we're like calling our people who are new to the church to give. And we had the, this moment of people looking around like, hey, where are the giving baskets? Uh, where's the offering basket? And we looked all around and realized they were gone. All right, um, and so we needed a verse like this, all right, to be, remind us like, hey, policies, procedures, taking care of things. Now, in case you're just worried right now, here's the story resolved, okay. Uh, they accidentally got packed up in the trailer. When we unpacked next week, there were the giving baskets and all of that. We've since realized that was God's way of telling us like, give online, then we don't have to deal with that, all right? But in all seriousness, I look at this text and I'm like, okay, is that it? Like if, if there's a committee of people that are handling the finances, like should we just, is this verses, are these verses just for them? But I think if we press in, we'll realize it's, much, it's part of a much, much bigger conversation. And so there's this line. It's here kind of in the middle of this passage that I want to call our attention to. And I think everything sort of hinges on this. And Paul said these words, as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us. And when Paul uses that language, here's what I want us to see. Whether it's a group of people who are called to collect an offering and then help transport it to a group of people, to a church in another location, regardless of the specifics, the calling for us as Christians, not just a couple thousand years ago, and not just when we're dealing with the matters of how to handle the church finances, but as we zoom out, we see we, see we are all called to live lives that are this act of grace, that you and I, as Paul reminded us back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, like we're ambassadors, we're heralds, we're on this mission, we're a sent people, we've been commissioned by King Jesus. And part of the confidence in saying that I, this, that this is a bigger uh, kind of narrative and a bigger theme we need to pay attention to is the language I think is very intentional. Paul says this, being ministered by us. Now that exact phrase, the word that's translated ministered showed up back in chapter three of 2 Corinthians in chapter three, verse three. And it uses a different word there, all right? It's administered sometimes or delivered, but the same root word is there. And it's this idea of ministry. And it's about a ministry of the new covenant, that we're these new covenant people. And Paul is talking about the old letter and now this new letter that's being written on hearts. And so what we see here is we're now kind of halfway through chapter eight, is it's this reminder, hey, we have been called to be ministers of grace, that we would engage, of in, we would engage in acts of grace every single day, 
So when you woke up this morning, your calling as a follower of Jesus to follow after him, to be closely tethered to him and to see the places that Jesus wants to go, all right, to advance his church and that we would follow along and we would seek to be agents of reconciliation and of grace. And in this time, in this place that we're living in, that is so needed that we as a church might be known as a group of people that are engaged in acts of grace. And so I wanna pose this question for a few minutes. We'll look at this. In this text, what does living as acts of grace actually look like? All right, and you know my penchant for alliteration or some, maybe three sections. I've got none of that today, so I'm completely thrown off, all right? Um, I've literally got... 10 observations from these verses, all right, which means I've got about two to three minutes per little point here, all right? So we got to move through these fairly quickly. A lot more could be said, but I think as we look back over this, we'll see some things that could inform your life and my life as we seek to be just ministers of grace. And don't get caught up on the term minister as if that means you've got to be on staff with the church, you got to have a head all right, thanks for bearing with us. Um, hopefully you'll be able to get uh, back online here. Sorry, um, you know, the joys of technology, I suppose. But I'm um, going to jump back into this. Uh, what I wanted to look at just for a few moments here is what are some of the things that characterize this group of people that are living, they see their whole life as acts of grace. They're not seeking to prove anything. They don't have to, they're not trying to earn God's favor, all right? They know that they have the favor of God, um, but rather they're now living their whole life in response. And so the very first thing um, I think we see there in verse 16 is this God-placed earnestness. And what I want you to see is like, this is something that is God-given. So let's just start there, right? If you hear nothing else today, just know that this earnestness, it's not something that Titus produced in himself. It's rather meant to just direct praise and adoration towards God. I think that's why Paul says, but thanks be to God. Who what? Who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. The pastor and theologian Sam Storm said this. He says, so when you find yourself loving the unlovely, thank God. Each time you choose what is righteous, thank God. When you experience strength to resist sin, to resist sin, thank God. When you show mercy to the weak and compassion to the hurting and are generous to the needy, thank God for his sovereignty extends even to the impulses of our heart and the passions of our soul. Is a good reminder for us as we think about this, rather than starting from a place of like, all right, what do I need to do to be this minister, to engage in acts of grace? We stop and we just start by saying, God, thank you um, that you've even given me this desire. And if you don't have that desire, that earnestness, Pray to the Lord and ask him to give it to you. Repent of the ways that you don't have a, a care for the things of God's kingdom, right? Like we all need to be growing in this. And so what I find fascinating though is it's like, all right, God gives this, but look with me at verse 17. I think we also see some effort here. And I would say it's grace-driven effort. For he not only accepted our appeal, referring to Titus, but being himself very earnest, what? He is going to you of his own accord. And so it kind of raises the question, right? Like, well, is it God's sovereignty or is it human responsibility, kind of human effort? And what you see throughout the scriptures, all right, is like, yes, right? God is sovereign. He's in control. He gives the desire, the earnestness, all of that. He gives the ability. And yet in light of that, we are called, we are, we are responsible, all right? We have a, a role to play. And so there is this grace-driven effort, not human-driven effort. It's not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but rather it's in light of the grace that we have 
received, all right? I love the way theologian D.A. Carson spoke of this. He said this, he says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, toward prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift actually toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition, we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Church may not be so for us. May there be this recognition and praise that's given to God for the desire and the earnestness, but may we actually act on the grace that we have been given so that more people might actually know this grace. And so I think that's where we gotta start. There's this grace-driven effort that's in response to the grace. Titus knows he's been saved by grace. Paul's been saved by grace. And now look at the description that's given in verse 18. We're introduced to this this other uh, travel companion, this other person who's part of this mission. We don't know his name, but look at the description in verse 18. I think it speaks to the call to be faithful in deed and in word. Look at verse 18 again. So with him, with Titus, we're sending, here's the description, the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. What a thing to be known for, right? Doesn't even get his name told, but he is famous amongst all the churches for the proclamation of the gospel. He's telling people about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's telling people about the grace of God. Now, lest we think for a moment that that means you have to do that, again, as somebody working for a church or a ministry, that is not how the Bible speaks of this. Guarantee you that this person who we're talking about, like there's a very good chance that they had nothing to do with any sort of maybe even formal platform or formal role or title, but they were, became known for this proclamation. And so sometimes we can get, kind of swing the pendulum one way, right? And maybe you've heard it said, this, this phrase that sometimes attributed to Francis of Assisi that, that says, you know, uh, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words, but I don't think the Bible actually would reinforce that, all right? Because um, the idea is, yes, good works. Yes, love and care for people. But there also is this word to be spoken. There is a truth to be proclaimed. People do need to know that they are sinners separated from God, that they're on a path towards judgment and destruction, and God has made a way. Like those truths need to be communicated. And so I love what 2 Timothy 4 verse 2 says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with complete patience and teaching. So it's not this posture of impatience and lording it over people, but rather it's like, hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? Can I speak these words? That's what it, what it looks like to live a life that is full of acts of grace. And so when we think about deed and word, it's not pick whatever you're better at. The call for a Christian is both of those. Maybe the imagery to think about it is this, like have you ever tried riding a bike with only one pedal, right? It doesn't work. Like think of it as two pedals on a bike that are moving in sync, that they're working together, deed and word, word and deed. And so that's one of the things that we're seeing about this kind of description of this man who's part of them. Verse 19 speaks then to this reality that these guys are not just setting out like on their own, they're appointed by the churches and they're appointed with other people. So verse 19, there's a group coming together. Not only that, 
but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. Let me remind us that this is, we could kind of just move past this. Maybe we miss it in the text, but what's happening here? There's a group of people that are coming together. The Bible knows nothing of this sort of lone ranger mentality. And in our day of sort of hyper-individualism, I think even that creeps into the church and it's like, I wanna do mission. I wanna figure it out all on my own. Like, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna reach this person. I'm gonna save the world. And it's like, no, no, like Jesus is the one who saved the world, all right? Solo mission by, by him in that sense, although father, son, spirit, all right? But we as the church, it's not us just going out on our own. It's always this group of people coming together. Like what, look what Jesus did back in Luke chapter 10. It says, and the Lord appointed 72 others and he sent them on ahead of him two by two and every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus is gathering a group of people and he doesn't send them out as isolated individuals. He pairs them up and he sends them out. There is a harvest. Church, there is a harvest right now. And the calling for us is to be engaged in the mission. The particulars might look different. You're probably not being sent this week to go collect an offering, but we are engaged in this act of grace. We get to proclaim the good news of Jesus. We get to love and serve people. What is the grants for good about? What are the things that we're trying to do during this time is all a way for us to say, all right, we're not here trying to figure out everything out, solve everything, but we wanna play our part as faithfully and as fruitfully as we possibly can. And then as verse 19 continues, I read it just a moment ago, there is this focus that is directed towards God. And so as they engage in this mission together, all right, we carry out this act of grace for what? For the glory of the Lord himself. It's not so we would get the accolades, the pats on the back, the likes on social media. It is not to be seen. One of the most profound passages I can think of is when the ministry of John the Baptist begins to start to be sort of eclipsed by the ministry of Jesus. And in John chapter three, I'll read this verse here in just a moment. But you have John who people are coming out in droves to see him. I mean, you could say his brand, his platform is, is building. He's got tons of followers on every social media platform possible if it was in present day, right? Like all of these people, and then in verse 26, we hear these words. Some of John's buddies come to him and, and they say to John, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, as we think about being ministers, acts of grace engaged in this, if we lose an upward, a Godward focus, it will bother us. It'll, it'll cause angst when we see the Lord blessing the efforts of somebody else to a point where we view it as a great, they're being blessed more than we are. John the Baptist did not have an ineffective ministry. No one could critique him and be like, that dude just sat on the sideline and didn't actually do anything for the kingdom. He was used by God. But ultimately, here's where John landed. He said this just a few verses later, he must increase, but I must decrease. 
Church, that is our calling, that we would continue to make much of Jesus. And we would celebrate when other people make much of Jesus and there's fruitfulness from that. Because it's not just about this local church, it's about what God is doing literally all around the world. Not just when this pandemic ends, but like right here, right now in this moment. And we get to play our part, but it's not for our name or your name or the name of Cross Point Winter Park. We need to decrease and he, Jesus, needs to increase all adoration and praise goes to him. Because at the end of the day, I can't save anybody. You can't save anybody, but Jesus can, and he can bring healing and restoration. And then at the end of verse 19, it speaks of this goodwill for the glory of the Lord himself. And it says, and we're doing this to show our good will. It's a call for the church to love people that are different than them. What's happening here is a call, hey, church in Corinth, you Gentiles, all right, from a completely different culture, will you give sacrificially so that a gift can be brought to a group of people in another part of the, the world, all right, in Jerusalem, who are Jewish, who have very, very, very little in common with you as sort of just kind of cultural background, but you have everything in common through the gospel. That's what's being spoken of here. So if we wanna be agents of grace, engaged in acts of grace, our calling is to love and serve, to work together with people that are different from us and to love and serve people that are different from us. And if you think for a moment that like, oh, like we've kind of got that on lockdown, just open up a news feed, a social media feed and see the tragedy that happened this week that we just became aware of, of something that happened back in February, right? A black man out for a run who gets gunned down what are you seeing there? It's the reality that there still is something in the human heart that wants to look down our nose at somebody else, to see somebody less than an image bearer. And us as the church, we have to step into those spaces. We have to step into those conversations. We have to be a people that would say, we want to love and serve and have goodwill toward all people. Because if Jesus loved me, despicable me, if he can do that, like then listen, I there's nobody that's beyond the grace of God. I want to love and serve and give everything that I have so that more people might know the grace of God. We need Jesus's help now more than ever. This passage here isn't outdated or irrelevant. It speaks to us right here in this moment. Colossians 3 verse 11 says this, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. There's a unity that we have in the gospel. A couple last things, okay? I know there's a lot in here. So we look at verses 20 to 21. I'll read these verses again. It says, so we take this course that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. So he's like, hey, here's the precautions we're taking. Here's all the things we're engaging in. For we aim, verse 21, at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And so there's this call to, to honor the Lord, to seek to focus on him. But I also would say this, there's this call to be aware of different people, to be socially aware. Um, Paul spoke of this actually back in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. He says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. So I love that there's a call to honor other people as we engage, or a call to honor the Lord. It says, but also in the sight of man. Doesn't mean we can perfectly figure everything out where people will never be misunderstood. 
but are you actually paying attention to how you're perceived, that the perception might be reality, all right? And so just stopping for a moment, saying, am I doing anything that's hindering the forward movement of the gospel? And then Paul begins to describe, there's one other person that's coming along with them, verse 22, and with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. Again, we don't know the person's name, but what we know is there's this third person that's gonna travel with this group. And it's somebody that's been tested. And so church, let me encourage us in this. There's a time of testing that is happening right now. There's trials, these difficulties, but the Lord is working in and through them for the advancement of his church, the forward movement of the gospel that the Lord always uses people, all right, who have been tried and tested. I would say people that have experienced a level of brokenness where we've come to the end of ourselves and we realize how needy we are. And so I think what we have here in this third companion here, this third traveler, this third missionary is somebody who has been tested. That's what the world needs more of, not people that run from testing or trials and tribulations, all right? The apostle Peter would speak of this, and don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes, but rather would we lean into it? Would we ask the Lord, like, how are you wanting to mold me and shape me during this time? As we deal with a global pandemic, all the things that are happening, all the disruption, the loss, the inconvenience, all the uncertainty, the anxiety, let's not run from it, but let's press into it. Because as we're tried and we're tested, we are forged into the kind of people that can be faithful missionaries. You've probably seen these ads, all right? Um, AT&T's been running the, these things that, you know, just okay is not okay. Maybe this scene looks familiar to you. Maybe you've seen this, right? Like um, in this, you got this person laying in the hospital bed with, with the nurse. And they're like, do you know Dr. Francis? She's like, yeah, he's okay. And the guy nervously is like, what do you mean just okay? As the doctor walks in, right, he's like, who, got, who just got reinstated, right? Maybe you've seen that, that commercial. And it leaves this sort of feeling of like, oh my gosh, like I'm putting my life in this person's hands. Like that's not what you want. You want somebody that's actually been tried and tested. And so when we think about the moment that we're in, know this, that God is readying us for whatever is next. And this is not something that is just gonna be like passed over and we'll just move on and nothing happened during this. There's a trial and a testing, I believe, to get us ready for further mission. Hebrews 12 says it this way, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. And so as we move over then, verse 23, look at the last two things. There's this call to live for the good of other people which is the big theme. Verse 23, as for Titus, he is my partner and my fellow worker for your benefit. Church, everything that you have has been given by God, your time, your talent, your treasure, relationships, everything to steward well for the benefit of other people and the glory of God. This is why Jesus would say this in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What beautiful words. And do you know what preceded those words if you were to go and read Mark 10? James and John asking for positions of prominence after Jesus literally just told them he was gonna suffer and die. The next conversation, the next thing on their mind is like, Jesus, can we have these certain roles of prominence and of accolade in your kingdom? And Jesus says, 
I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It is so difficult. It's so counterintuitive. Even when we think we've grasped it, there's something in the human heart that wells up. And it's like, oh, but I want to do something for me, even in the name of ministry. Luke 22, similar theme. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. The disciples are arguing over who is the greatest. Do you know what preceded these verses? The Last Supper, which included what? Jesus breaking the bread, pouring the cup, saying, this is my body, this is my blood. Oh, and I just washed all of y'all's feet, your dirty, stanky, nasty feet, all right? And now what are they arguing about? Well, who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus says these words. He says, for who is the greater one? The one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. That's our calling. If we're gonna be a church full of acts of grace, we conclude with this in verse 23 as well. It speaks of Titus living for the benefit and it says, as for our brothers, they are messengers of the church. And then there's this phrase, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. The glory of Christ. I don't believe that's speaking of those that are sent. It's speaking of the churches and God's high view of the church. And so if we're going to be faithful, acts of grace, it involves being connected to the body of Christ that is a local church. There's no verse that I can find that says it needs to be Cross Point Winter Park as much as we'd love to have you. But the calling as a follower of Jesus is to be connected in a local church, to view it as the scriptures speak of the glory of Christ. But if you're like, well, I've been burned by the church, I got misgivings about the church, I, I get that. But Jesus died for his church. Jesus hasn't given up on his church. Jesus is using his church to advance the mission. Ephesians 5 speaks of this. Husbands, love your wives, all right? Which is an important thing. And what does he tie that to? As Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy in and without blemish. That doesn't look like the picture of somebody that's indifferent towards his church, who's given up on his church, or has given up on his bride. Jesus is faithfully pursuing his church. He's purifying us. He's making us more holy, making us into the people we're called to be. And we now get to go out and tell that message and be part of this movement. And the only way that any of this is possible, all right, is we look through this and we maybe get excited about it, but we feel the weight of it. The only way any of this is possible is when we realize and we think about living our lives in a way that's full of acts of grace is because of the ultimate act of grace. That's it, right? Like we can't do this in our own strength. We have to continually go back to the story of Jesus. We have to remember that he was sent on a rescue mission, the ultimate act of grace, the one who poured himself out. It's what we looked at last week in 2 Corinthians chapter eight. We looked at the one who, it tells us that for our sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you know that Jesus? Have you embraced that Jesus? Are you walking with that Jesus? Are you experiencing his ongoing grace? Church, we need to be confronted by the living Jesus in the same way the disciples were just after the resurrection. In John 20, it says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That greeting of peace is not just a hello, hey, how you doing? When he says peace be with you, it's because he earned that peace. It's what Isaiah 53 verse five speaks of. That Jesus dealt with our transgressions and our iniquities, that the chastisement that brought us peace, by his wounds we are healed. This is what Jesus has done. And he reminds them of that and he reminds us of that. And then he says, you have been converted to me by me. You're brought into this family and now you're converted to this mission. You have a whole new role to play. And he says, as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Church, that's our call to participate. So let me pray for us now. And we're gonna continue. We'll close out our service by worshiping Jesus through song. But let me pray for us that we would be the kind of people that would embody these acts of grace, that we would live in glad response to the grace that we have received. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you praise for who you are, for your willingness to send your son, for the plan you put in place to rescue us, to redeem us. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to enter in, to leave everything, to be forsaken by your fathers, that we might be brought in the family of God, that we might be restored to your presence. God, we want to live as men and women who are faithful to, to be about your work of grace and of mission. We need your help. We can't do this divorce from the gospel. Jesus, may we daily repent of our sin, repent of the ways we try and do it in our own strength. May we celebrate the peace that you've achieved for us that through your wounds we are healed. And may that compel us then to accept your invitation to go and to be a sent people. So help us to live for you, for your glory, for the good of other people, for the goodwill of all people. And may we experience uh, just a great joy in following after you. Be with us. We need you, Lord. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.